scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, the 28th chapter, the 18th through the 20th verse. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. realize something. Fan doesn't work when it's not plugged up. I need to take a class on that. Glad you're here this morning. Appreciate the presence of every single one of you. And those of you who are joining us online, we likewise are appreciative of your spiritual interest this morning. One of the very first persons I met when I went to Fried Hardman College, at the time it was still college, was a fellow by the name of Johnny Melton. If anybody here knew Johnny or knows Johnny, you know that he, was, he stood about maybe 5'3 in, in his cowboy boots. But a wonderful fellow and a Bible major and very dedicated to the Lord. He told this story on himself, and I've heard it told by about a bunch of other people since then, so I'm it's kind of suspect as to whether this actually happened to Johnny or if he was just preaching. You know what I mean. But he was talking about uh, baptizing a lady one time in a, in a river. That had some recent rains, and so the river was up, and it was moving pretty rapidly. And so he encouraged her to be very careful as they, they went out into the area about waist-deep in, in the river for him to baptize her. Well, Johnny was wearing the waders, and that's kind of, I think that's scriptural. It's in the Bible somewhere that preachers have to wear waders. And Johnny had cinched up the waders because he was, again, a small guy, and he'd cinched them up to make sure that no water would dip in, into the waders to the degree that he had created an air bubble. You're getting ahead of me, aren't you? <laughs> so when Johnny got out into that swift water, waist deep, and the congregation watched as, as two feet went bobbing down the river. Of course, they, uh, uh, Johnny went on to have a wonderful uh, preaching career, so that means that he survived that. But I'll but I never forget that story because two souls were saved that day, uh, one of them physically and the other spiritually. If you have never... If you've never seen someone walk down the aisle or had the privilege of baptizing someone that you know primarily made that decision because you cared enough to plant the seed of the Word of God in their hearts, then you have missed a tremendous blessing. And I want to talk about that a little bit this morning. For those of you who are members and you've come in every Sunday for, for at least this year and for about a six, the last six months, you've seen the, the signs that we have up on all the walls and you know that our theme is win one in 21. I want us to think about that this morning in light of, of our responsibility and also our privilege to be able to share the good news with those around us. And I know that there are people in this congregation that because of this theme have thought for the very first time about, hey, maybe I could speak a word for Jesus. Maybe I could teach someone, or maybe I could at least initiate a conversation with someone about, about spiritual things. And, and I know that because I've had conversations with people who are now thinking like that, and I'm grateful for that. And I hope that you will act on it. 
But this morning, I want us to talk about that in, in terms of friendship evangelism, because I think this is one of the main ways that we can be able to influence and affect other people to make decisions for Christ that, that perhaps we would never have thought about it unless you had spoken that, that word and that you had encouraged them to think about the situation and the state of their souls. I, I know that the Bible tells us in the passage that Alex just read that that uh, our marching orders are to go and, and preach the gospel to every creature. That's Mark's 16 account. And then the Matthew account is to go make disciples of all nations. We know the passages. And, and that's not really the issue. I think probably most of us could quote both of those passages from beginning to end. And so we know what our marching orders are. But sometimes we're not really squared away on who it is that's supposed to do that. My, my friend and, and fellow preacher Jerry Barber likes to say it's the hired gun syndrome and in a lot of congregations. By that, he means that, that we hire people to come in and do what we don't want to do ourselves. You know, uh, hired guns in the westerns would come clean up the town. But sometimes we hire people to do things like share the gospel simply because we don't want to do it ourselves. I, I want us to think bigger than that this morning. I want us to think in terms of the privilege and the responsibility each of us has to, to do something. And I, and I realize that not everybody is trained or capable or has the speaking ability or whatever to be able to, to carry a person from point A to point Z on that conversion continuum, but there's something, there's something that you can do. I've always maintained that everybody needs to be a soul winner in some way. Whatever talents you have, whatever abilities you have, whatever people you know, whatever your circle of acquaintance might be, there's somebody that you can influence and cause to go to heaven. I know this, that God gave us the marching orders there, and specifically Matthew 28 is what I want us to look at this morning. He said grow, and I know that there's no place in any concordance that you will find the term church growth. You'll not find it in the Bible. But when Jesus said go make disciples of all nations, that kind of implies that, doesn't it? And at the end of the day of Pentecost, after 3,000 plus had obeyed the gospel, the Bible says in Acts 2.47, and the Lord added to the church daily such as were being saved. So that means that the church was growing because the Lord was adding souls on a daily basis. And kind of wrap your brain around that for a moment. Can, can you imagine being a part of a congregation where they, were, they had at least one baptism every day? 365 a year was the minimum for the Jerusalem church, at least in the beginning. And so the Lord said that we need to grow and, and that we need to make disciples of all nations, and that's pretty clear. So it's not a matter of cognitively misunderstanding the marching orders. And the early church did grow, despite tremendous obstacles, despite persecution and opposition. The Bible says in the early chapters of the book of Acts that it was growing hand over fist. And, and when you understand the intensity of the persecution and the oppression of that early church, it really makes you wonder how in the world were they able to do that? Or, or why would they jeopardize their own physical safety by actually opening their mouths and speaking for Jesus when they were told by the powers that be, you're not supposed to be doing that. Let me give you four or five quick examples, and this will just take a minute, of, of how phenomenally that church grew, what, how dynamic it was in, in carrying the gospel to the world at that time. Acts chapter 241, there on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says, as I just mentioned, there was added to the church 3,000 souls. And then you look down in verse 47 of the very same chapter. And the Bible says, the Lord added to the church daily, as we just mentioned. Chapter 4, verse 4, the number of men was about 5,000. So we're just talking about the heads of households here. 
So if you take into account, most of them had wives, maybe even children or a multiplicity of children. So we're talking about phenomenal growth. Just the men at that occasion were baptized, 5,000 of them. And then Acts 5, 14, and the believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Let me give you one more. Acts 6, verse 7, and the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, again, that's just five passages. You could find a lot more in the book of Acts, the book of conversions, because it talks about how that the church was just growing despite the opposition that I just referenced. Let me say a word about friendship evangelism. And it is exactly what it sounds like, but I want to define that for us and describe it a little bit this morning to help us to, to make sure we're all on the same page. I'm convinced that we have neglected the most effective approach in winning the world for Christ, and that is friendship evangelism. Making sure that we know that we are beginning to develop relationships with evangelistic intent. Now, I don't mean this as any kind of derogatory sort of comment, but I remember a brother of mine who preaches over in Texas telling me that there's, there were, in the city where he lives, a rather large city, I think most of them are in Texas, but anyway, in a large city in, in Texas that has 17 congregations that are at least 1,000 strong in membership. Some of them, he said, are 1,500. So you got that in your mind, 17 congregations that are between 1,000 and 1,500 in membership. He said none baptized more than 10 people last year. And his conclusion and the reason that he shared that with me is because we were both on the same page in our thinking. And that is we ought to be able to trip more people accidentally into heaven than that. You know, the suction on the church house doors ought to pull in more people than that. But for the most part, there are congregations that are just baptizing the people who turn themselves in at the church office. But they aren't really saving souls intentionally. And I don't want us to be one of those congregations. I want us to be a congregation that has soul, a soul-winning mentality. That when we look at people, and I mean even the guy that just cut you off on Atlanta Highway, I want us to look at them, everyone, as, as souls that need to be saved, because that's exactly right. You know, somebody said we, we need to get out of the cafeteria style of doing church work, and we need to get into the catering business, and I believe there's a lot of truth to that. We'll talk about that at a later time. But evangelism, if it's done correctly, folks, it's more than just a, a method. It's a lifestyle. In fact, in the text that Alex read a moment ago, in that passage, in, in the phrase where Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing, the, the word go there has the idea literally translated into the English as, as you go. So, so he's not just talking about having Tuesday night as your soul winning night and don't ever think souls at any other time. He's talking about in every situation, in every context of life, we ought to be soul conscious. As we go, we ought to be making disciples. Whether that's in my neighborhood, in my family, whether it's in a classroom, whether it's in any situation of life, God's people need to have that kind of mentality that I want to I lead people to the Lord so that they can go to heaven as well. But, but the problem is we've made evangelism so hard in the Lord's church that many people are afraid to try it. Our image of evangelism or soul winning so often is just a, a, a formal Bible study sitting at somebody's kitchen table and we bring them again all the way from point A to point Z in the conversion process. 
And as I've said many, many times before, some people could not teach at that level if you held a gun to their heads. I'm convinced from my study of Scripture that there are varying levels of soul winning. And they all start with every member influencing everybody everywhere. Just do what you can. You may not be able to lead them all the way to the baptistry. But you can speak a word about Jesus. You can introduce them to the church. You can initiate that, con- that conversation about spiritual things with your next door neighbor or whoever it might be. So that someday somebody else can walk through that open door and plant the seed of God's word in their hearts. That, that sounds almost biblical, doesn't it? And that's because it is. In Acts 5, verse 42, the Bible says, And daily in the temple and from house to house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus as the Christ. I mean, that's the reason why the church was growing so phenomenally in its early years. Because everywhere they went, publicly and privately, they were sharing the the saving message of Jesus Christ with those around them. So let's cut to the chase and define a couple of terms this morning. And then I want to talk about the application and we'll be through. Friendship evangelism is sharing matters of eternal importance with a friend. And if you want to emphasize any one word in that statement, friend would be the word that I would underscore. Peter said in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, we've tasted that the Lord is gracious. Think of, isn't that a beautiful statement? We have tasted that the Lord is gracious. If that really is true, if that's your, if that's your reaction to getting to know Jesus then why in the world would we not want to share that information? Why would we not want to give that away so that other people could likewise, likewise say, I have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So friendship evangelism is, is building a redemptive relationship with a friend. And I just kind of want to set that foundation in place before we go on. And you can participate in, in friendship evangelism by becoming one of the following things. And I hope as I mentioned these six things this morning, that you will find yourself in one or more of these categories. The first one is a toucher. A toucher is a Christian who, who cultivates a friendship for Christ. Now, again, he or she may not be able to sit down at a table and uh, actually conduct a formal Bible study, but, but, but they, can, they can open the door. They can speak a word. They can send a card. They can cook a cake. They can visit someone who just lost a loved one who lives down the street. There's a thousand ways that we can touch other people, spiritually speaking, and cause them to think for maybe for the first time in their lives about their relationship to God and how, that they can, how they can come to know Jesus. And that person is, again, building that friendship with saving intent. He's building a bridge into another person's life with, with that redemptive purpose in mind. He establishes a warm and friendly and a trusting relationship, and he gains his friend's approval, respect, and confidence. Let me also add this proviso because this is so important. We need to be able to communicate as we're building this friendship and this relationship with evangelistic intent. That if this person decides not, when, when, whenever they get to the point of actually learning God's word and learning what they need to do to be saved, if they decide to say no, they're still going to be our friend. Otherwise, what are you doing? You're just manipulating people. No, they're still going to be our friend no matter what. Whatever they say. You know, the Bible says in Mark chapter 10, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and approached him and said, Good master, what, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? And the Lord told him, and he went away sorrowful because he had great possession. In Mark's account of that particular incident, the Bible still says, and Jesus, knowing his heart, loved him. 
when that, when that young man walked away, the Lord loved him as much or more than when he first approached him. And that's what we need to do as well. We need to continue to love people, and they're still our friends no matter what decision they make. So you may have suspected that it's, that it's very difficult to convert someone cold turkey. And you'd be right about that. To, to just convert somebody who's a total stranger. Maybe you met them, you know, in an airport or whatever. And just to broach the subject of spiritual things. Now, again, you might be able to open the door there. But cold turkey evangelism is, is, is not very effective. So a toucher's network of influence can, can include his family, his close friends, his neighbor, his co-workers, person X who, who moved in next door or down the street and you don't even know their name yet. And let me tell you this. You are the most powerful person you know. And, and here's why. Because you hold within your grasp the eternal destiny of men. Now, I'm not saying that you're godlike in that sense, but I am saying that you can impact people. You can lead them, you can direct them, and you can change their lives for Christ. And in doing that, you will alter their eternal destiny. You see, we are stewards of the Word of God, which is the most powerful, powerful source of information and revelation in the world. You bring your friendship to the point where you can naturally and effectively invite that friend to a study of God's word. Maybe in your house, maybe in somebody else's house. Maybe you're conducting the study, maybe somebody else is doing it. You're not, you're not comfortable with that yet. Let me give you a Bible example of that. Cornelius in Acts the 10th chapter. The Bible says that Cornelius was a toucher in the sense that we're trying to describe this morning. Listen to Acts 10 and verse 24. Now, you need to understand the machinations that were necessary in order to get Peter into Cornelius' house to be able to share with him words of eternal life. And you know that there was an angel involved. There was communication that, Peter, you need to go to Joppa and you need to see this man. And all of that takes place. But anyway, verse 24 of Acts 10 reads like this. And on the following day, so Peter finally gets to Cornelius' house. On the following day... He, that is Peter, entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting. That implies he was anxious and ready to hear what Peter had to say, doesn't it? I hope I'm not reading into the verse. But he was waiting for them. And then here's the, what I really want us to lock in on. The last part of that verse, verse 24, says, And he called together his relatives and close friends. I hope you saw that. Cornelius used his contacts and his relationships to position his relatives and his friends near Simon Peter so that when Peter got there, he has a ready-made audience. It isn't just Cornelius. It's a lot of people that Peter is going to be able to speak to and to share words of eternal life. And we can do the same thing today, folks. Even if we aren't able to teach someone one-on-one, We can bring them into a position where they can be taught by others who are trained to do exactly that. That's that's a toucher. Here's a second category some of you may find yourselves in, and that's a teller. Now, that is not someone who works at the bank. I just wanted to make sure that you understood that. A teller is different from a toucher in that a a teller can, can, can communicate his faith at least to some degree. Again, maybe not all the way to the point of conversion where... You know, when that conversation ends, that person says, I'm ready to be baptized. But, but they're able to go a little bit farther than the toucher in being able to communicate their faith. They can tell a little. Uh, again, maybe not all the way to, to the end of the process. But a, a teller is a person who tells others what Jesus has personally done in his or her life. Now, also, that needs a qualifier. 
This isn't the same as the old denominational testimonial that's based solely or at least primarily on someone's experience because faith does not, you do not build your faith on someone else's experience. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's always been true. It's still true today. But there is a place for people to be able to communicate to others. Let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life. Don't you think that? I believe it with all my heart that, that, that there's a place where we need to say, here's the effect that knowing Jesus and following him has had and the change it has made in my life. So a teller may not have the ability of an evangelist to, to reason and debate and recite a lot of scriptures and, and have great persuasive power. But man, can he ever tell what Jesus is doing in his or her life? Let me give you a couple of Bible examples of that if you're still skeptical. I submit that in John 9, the blind man was this kind of person, that he was a teller. You may remember that in John 9, after he had been healed of his blindness by Jesus, of course, that the powers that be, the rulers of the city, were trying to track down all the players in that situation. Jesus had already left the scene. So they are interviewing the blind man and his parents about who was it that, that healed you. And, and there's a lot that's involved, a lot of moving parts in that wonderful, wonderful account. But notice verse 25, where finally, it seems with a degree of exasperation, the blind man says this to their, their, their endless questions. Whether he, that is Jesus, was a sinner or not, I don't know. I do know one thing. I was blind, and now I see. Isn't that powerful stuff? Here's just one thing I know for sure. I, I don't know his spiritual status, but I do know one thing. When I first met him, I was, I was blind, and now I can see. And, 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 and there are millions of people around this world who can say that spiritually. What's, what's he telling the man? Well, look at Mark chapter 5. Let me give you a quick example of here where, where Jesus freed a man who had, uh, was demon-possessed. Mark chapter 5 and verse 19 in particular. After he had uh, cast out the demons, Jesus says to the man, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Just tell them what Jesus has done in your life. So what's he telling him? Go home to the people that you know best and say, hey, there's someone you've just got to meet. I think that's the essence of it. Now, remember what the woman at the well, at Jacob's well in John chapter 4, said immediately after her conversation with Jesus? The Bible says in John 4, 28 and 29, you can either check it out or write it down to look at later. John 4, 28, 29, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? I'll remind you that the Lord's church began in Samaria due to that woman going back to the people she knew and saying, there's a possibility that I just had a conversation with the Messiah. I mean, the whole city was influenced by what this woman told them. A teller may not be able to take his newly cultivated friend through every step of that conversion continuum, but, but he can take the prospect as far as he can. And others can then take over and teach that person to the point of conversion. And then guess what? That, can, that con new convert already has a, a group of people he's acquainted with, and that's you and your family, the first one they came in contact with. So they've already got some acquaintances inside the church, and we know how critical that is. 
Because a person who's a babe in Christ, who's a brand new Christian, one of the things that they need most is to begin to develop relationships in the church and not just have all of their friendships and relationships outside of the church because otherwise there's a great temptation they'll be pulled back into the world. So they need to begin doing that. And so this does all of those things and and this helps to nail up the back door and keep that person from exiting once they've made the decision to follow Christ. Here's number three, and that's the table server. We're going to move quickly. Mark 14, 12 through 14 reads, and these are the words of Jesus. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, And you'll be blessed. Now, if you're thinking there's more to the story than that, you're exactly right. But I picked out the one verse where Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter and says, It's a a wonderful thing if you have a dinner party for your friends and the people you know or maybe for your own family. But, But consider this. Maybe you can open your home and have a dinner and and cook some food and invite all of these people he just mentioned, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the poor. He said, that's when you'll really be blessed. When you bring people in who maybe haven't had a good meal in a month, that's when the, when the real blessing will come. And I'm saying that you can serve as a host home for a Bible study, even if you feel like at this point you can't, do, you can't hold a Bible study yourself. You couldn't conduct one. Let me give you an example of that biblically. Levi, better known as Matthew in Scripture, was that kind of table server. You may remember that only a short while after Matthew, Levi, decided to follow Jesus and become a disciple of his, here's what the Bible says about him. And after that, he went out and he noticed, and this is the he, here's Jesus, and he noticed a tax gatherer named Levi sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. So now we have a brand new disciple. His name is Matthew or Levi, depending on which uh, translation you're reading. But wait, we're not done. The next verse, this is Luke 5, by the way, 27 through 29. And, And Levi gave a big reception for him, that is Jesus, in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people who were reclining at the table with them. I hope you saw what happened there. Levi is using his house, his furniture, his dishes, his food, some of his money, and his gracious hospitality to further Jesus' influence and teaching among his own peers. And he's a brand new disciple. He's just now decided to follow Jesus himself. And now he's already having a reception at his house saying, here's somebody I want you to meet. So he opened his house and his heart to the IRS of his day so that they might meet the master. You cannot underestimate the power of that. He wanted his friends to find what he had found. Like Gaius described in 3 John verse 8, he was an ally of the truth. I'm a friend of the truth is, is, is basically what he was demonstrating with his life. And I have to wonder how many of you this morning in this audience are willing to be a Levi. Are you willing to open your home so that somebody could have a Bible study at your kitchen table? Would you be willing to do that so that the touchers and the tellers could, could bring their guests to be taught under your roof? Number four, we need to move on, is, is a teacher, maybe, maybe even a preacher, a didaskalos. Here's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. The apostles, the Bible says in Acts 5 and verse 25, and listen carefully to this statement. We're standing in the temple and teaching the people. Already, with just that brief statement, I picked up on one thing. They are comfortable standing in front of a group of people. So they don't have any problems with standing up in a crowd and and speaking this word 
for Jesus. Did you know that the number one fear in America right now is the fear of public speaking? I've mentioned that a few times from this pulpit, and it's still true from at least the latest statistics that I've read. The fear of public speaking. So this is, this is something. When you can say about these men that they're comfortable standing up and talking in front of a crowd. And the word taught there in, in Acts 5, verse 21 in particular, seems to indicate that they were speaking the whole message of this life. That is, it was an all-encompassing message. They weren't just saying, let me tell you about what Jesus has done in my life. No, they were actually propositionally talking about God's word and about God's will for, for their lives. It was all an all-encompassing message. They were telling everything, the whole counsel of God. Now, this word for teacher may imply a more sophisticated process than just speaking or evangelizing, just, just getting the message out. You can do that on the radio, internet, television, or a lot of other ways in mass media. It, it may have called for greater skill and knowledge than that was possessed by a toucher or a teller or a table server. It included the presentation of the total message of scriptures. And, and it also involved what Paul often did in Acts 17 verse 2. You might note that Paul's custom was that when he would get into a new town, one of the first things he would do would be go into the synagogue. And the Bible says that he would be verbally debating and reasoning from Scripture. So there was some exchange, some give and take in those, those discourses where Paul was actually able to entertain questions from people that he was speaking to. So in every church, there are teachers who have a grasp of the entire scheme of redemption, the whole plan of salvation. I mean, they are into the book. They're capable of directing group studies, typically in a public setting. And this kind of teacher that I'm trying to describe this morning is going to present subjects that are relevant to a person's life, that will develop a consciousness of, of the sin in, in their lives and their need to know Jesus Christ and his redeeming power. Did you know that there are people in the church in 2021 who are more comfortable speaking to a thousand people than they are speaking one-on-one. And if you think that's uh, hard to believe, it it really is true. And and you know what? That's okay. Because we need everybody's talents in kingdom service. Isn't that right? I hope I'm fair in saying that. We need what everybody can do as a harmonious unit to bring people to Christ. So what I'm saying is that some are more comfortable speaking to individuals. I'm comfortable having a private study one-on-one with someone but I'm not comfortable in front of a crowd. And then you have the vice versa. You have people more comfortable in crowds than one-on-one. We need both kinds in the kingdom of Christ. We, we need extroverts and introverts in the kingdom of our Lord. We need left-brain people and right-brain people in the kingdom of Christ. Everybody using their talents. Everybody desiring to see everyone someday go to heaven. And then there's the, there's the talker. This is... What I mean by a talker is basically a personal evangelist. In every church, there are men and women who can teach one-on-one. The Bible says in Acts 5 and verse 41, every day in the temple, from house to house, we noted a moment ago, they, were, they kept right on preaching Jesus as the Christ. And, and the word for preaching there means to tell or talk the good news. So we need, we need harvesters in the spiritual sense. And I, and I hate to use this expression, but it really is ap- appropriate here. People who can close the sale. People who ha- know how to bring people to a decision. Not just impart information, as good as that information might be, but don't know how to actually bring the person to the point where they say, I'm ready to obey the Lord and become a New Testament Christian. 
who can persuade men and women to accept and to obey the gospel of God's dear son. Talking about people like Apollos. You remember in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, where Paul said, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. Folks, if you want to expand your mind, your thinking sometime, just ponder on what did watering involve? And I know that you know agriculturally that when a plant is put in the ground, a seed is put in the ground, it requires cultivating and, and maybe some hoeing and plowing and, and watering. But spiritually speaking, that's true as well. So, so here is Paul planting the seed, but, but Paul said that, that didn't complete the conversion process. That didn't con- complete leading that person to Christ. Apollos came along and he watered what I had planted. But lest we decide that it's time for us to share medals, you know, here's who I led to the Lord, or put another notch on my evangelistic belt, he said, don't ever forget that it was God who gave the increase. That's where the real power is. But But it requires the sowing and the watering. And we need both of those things. We need both individuals, both talents represented in the kingdom of Christ, those who can plant the seed and those who can water it. I think I mentioned this before, but let me mention it quickly again. Back in the day, I can remember when congregations would hold gospel meetings that would last for two weeks. Yeah, and it was tiring. Even you go back a generation beyond that, and sometimes there would be gospel meetings that would last for a month. But the the ones I'm telling about lasted for two weeks. And my grandfather was a great teacher. Uh, my, my grandfather on my mother's side. And he, he just had that ability to be able to teach in such a plain basic way that people understood exactly what God's word said when he was dealing with a particular passage. But he wasn't a great persuader. So here's how they worked through that conundrum. My grandfather would preach week one and plant the seed in the hearts of those people who attended. And then another fellow would come in who had great persuasive power and he would preach week two. At the end of, my grandfather would be, would not be hesitant to say that during week one, Oftentimes there were absolutely no conversions. I mean, they sang the invitation song every night, but nobody came forward. Week two, tremendous amount of responses. Why? Because my grandfather sowed, and, and another fellow, his name wasn't Apollos, but he was the one who was watering. And, and he had that ability. You know what? It takes all kinds in the kingdom of Christ to allow the church to create an environment for the church to grow. And that's what I wanted to communicate this morning. One last area that I really need to talk about, because otherwise this picture is incomplete. The, the last position or category that we might consider would be a tutor. And, and the better word for a tutor might be a nurturer, because there needs to be persistent follow-up with, with a new convert. As Brother uh, Alan Webster, I almost lost Alan's name there. Alan Webster one time said, the day of dunk em and drop em is long past. You know, our, our goal is not just to get people into the baptistry and then forget about them. That's not what the church is supposed to be doing. We need to have tutors who can teach further and advise and mature and equip that new convert to grow up in Christ. Matthew twenty-eight twenty, and then continue to teach them God's word. The word teaching is, is used twice in the text that we're using this morning. But what about Colossians 1.28? Here's what that, how that reads. Paul said, Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that he may present every man perfect or full grown in Christ Jesus. There's always a great need for an army of folks to keep the saved 
saved. And so if you could be a nurturer, a tutor in that sense, and you could say, I don't have great ability, maybe I'm, I, I, all, I'm confined to my home, I can't go out much, but I can still cook a meal, that you can encourage those who are recent converts and create uh, that new relationship inside the body of Christ that will seal up that back door and keep people from leaving once they've made that monumental decision for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just saying this morning, and I hope that I've not communicated otherwise, that there's more than one approach to soul winning. And and I know in my preaching life, I've I've gone through a variety. Some of you are old enough to remember the Jewel Miller film strips. Every now and then I'll hear a noise in a store that goes ding, and I'm taking back 50 years, and I'm ready to move the slide. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Move the slide to the next frame. So there was Jill Miller, then there's Ivan Stewart's OBS, and then there's Fishers of Men, and, and Brother Rob Whitaker's coming early October to talk to us about another tremendously powerful and successful way of sharing God's Word, and, and, and we ought to be looking forward to that so that it can kind of help us to expand our horizons in regards to the privilege that we have of sharing God's Word with others. I'm, I'm saying there's, just, there's not just one way, and I think we would be remiss if we had you know some sacred cow in the lord's church and said we've got to win souls this way and no other way no we we need to allow for the individuality of every member as long as it's biblical and it's correct and you're sharing god's word with other people then go to it Uh, and and sometimes it's just carrying on a conversation across the backyard fence and and that's the way a lot of people are introduced to christ it's it's amazing by the way i didn't intend to say this so this is overtime uh and how many people, when they are asked, how, how did you become a Christian? How did you become familiar with the truth? Who shared the truth with you? In the majority of cases, I can't give you the exact percentage right now, but in the majority of cases, it came from an informal discussion. That's where it all started. You know, it might have been in a beauty shop. It, uh, they don't call them beauty shops anymore, do they? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Uh, it, it might have been across the backyard fence. It might have been, you know, in any kind of informal situation, but... I'm just saying we need to be soul conscious. Win one in 21. I hope we're taking that seriously and not just something to put on the walls. I hope every one of us will, if if we didn't come in this way, we'll leave soul conscious and desirous of finding opportunities as, as you go evangelism. So as we leave this building this morning, let's have our eyes open, our ears open, and our hearts attuned to the lost that are literally everywhere around us so that we might win them to Christ. There might be a more immediate need this morning, and that's for you to make the decision to become a New Testament Christian. So through your faith in God's word and and the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, you're willing to confess that out loud, and you're willing to repent of all your past sins and determine you're going to live better from now on and be baptized where Jesus' blood will cover every one of your past mistakes And you can leave this place heaven-bound as a brand-new creature in Christ. And if that's what you need to do this morning, we plead with you to come while we stand and while we sing.